Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hi, welcome to Godsplaining. This is a very special episode of Godsplaining. As usual, twice a month, we have what's called guest-splaining, where we bring on a guest to talk about literature or culture or theology or spirituality or philosophy or anything that we think that you might be interested in hearing uh, from us about or from this guest about. I'm very excited. My name is Father Bonaventure Chapman. I'm joined here by Father Patrick Mary Briscoe. And most importantly, I'm joined by, we're joined by Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, who, if I might say, uh, is perhaps, as you'll find out this episode, and as you read into her, I hope after this, perhaps the most interesting medievalist in the world, um, or at least she's in the running for it. So let me just say a few words. Uh, welcome, by the way, Professor Brown. Thank you for having me. You're now welcome. That I, how uh, am I going to live up to that? I better be pretty. Well, you're going to have to try because here we go. I'm going to do. I'm do some more. Um. So so if you don't know Professor Brown yet, you will, um, or you should. But if you don't know her, she is an associate professor at University of Chicago. By the way, that's a great school. I mean, Nobel Prize winning people are there, and there she is. So she is one of the best institutions in the world as research member. Um, she works mainly on medieval history and literature, especially Tolkien, which we'll talk about, but also on the Vir- Blessed Virgin Mary. And she has a, oh, plenty of things to say about that. Two books out on it, especially one um, most recently in 2017 called Mary and the Art of Prayer, the Hours of the Virgin in Medieval Christian Life and Thought. number of articles. She has uh, her own websites. Um, which you can look up on. It's called, uh, let's see, Fencing fencing Bear at Prayer. That's exactly. Once you go there, you'll understand why she's the most interesting medievalist. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as related to this episode, um, she has a whole course, a subscription course called The Forge of Tolkien uh, on unauthorized.tv. So you can go on and you can, you can subscribe to that course and you'll get, we're just a little entree here, of course, but you get the whole kind of expert thing. Now, what's most interesting, though, and the connection with Father Patrick, Mary, and myself, and, and you, Professor Brown, is, is reading through your different profiles, you describe your metho- methodology and teaching uh, this way. You say we, should, we aim to, to think ourselves inside the frames from within which our sources were written so as to attempt to understand why their authors made the arguments that they did in the way that they did and therefore became, thereby became aware of the limitations. This passage about seeing within their own frames, you would describe in other places as, as rethinking the thoughts of the authors and such. And I was wondering, oh my, she's obviously read Professor R.G. Collingwood, who I think is perhaps the, <laughs> perhaps the most underappreciated uh, scholar in the 20, 20th century, um, and both Pat, Father Patrick and I taught a course uh, where, called Reacting to the Past, where we did Collingwood's method to understand the Galileo and the French Revolution method. So I just want to say I'm, I was so excited to see um, Roger Collingwood on your various and sundry uh, things. So with that introduction, um, we're here to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien. So a quick bio, maybe? What got, what got you interested in Tolkien and... Uh, Tell me about um, where you first read him and what what the experience was and that sort of thing. Um, I first read him when I was, I say 11, and I really hope that was the right year. 
Uh, I got the, uh, I still have them. They, they, they live by me in the, the box set, right? That, um, and Ooh, you, know, oh, cool. you can see those. this. You're, you're of a certain age, if you remember this particular set. Is, I published in 1973, and I think I got it in a few years after that. So I and my mother gave it to me for Christmas. She hadn't actually ever. I think maybe she knew about the Hobbit, but it, it was one of those. She thought she looked at it and thought I would like it. And I think I first read it, you know, in the car driving across the middle of the country to grandmother's house, right? <laughs> um, and since we in that in that trip we were driving from um, Kentucky to Texas, you sort of get the middle America landscape and I, for me it, there was a sort of perfect way to be introduced to Tolkien since so much of it is that journey that they're taking across Middle Earth I'm saying I'm across Middle America I'm across Middle Earth um, I basically have reread the books um, every several years you know ever since and what I loved about it growing up I mean I read it as, when I was 11 and it was one kind of story I read it a few years later it felt like a different I reread it in high school I reread it in graduate school college and it's like and the course that I teach at University of Chicago begins with this expectation one that the students have already read the book sometimes over spring break when they first show up but that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is one of those books that you reread over the course of your life mm. and in in that sense it it very easily becomes, in fact, a kind of scripture on which we model our own journeys. So that, that's my short version of the introduction. Yeah, that that's that's great. And quick on on that issue, I I don't know if a lot of people, at least some of the people listening to this podcast, um, may not actually like reread books in general. So why not a quick, um, just a quick p point on why reread a book if you've read it? You got all the information from it, so why would you read it again? Well, you probably don't have all, I mean, getting all the information, that's an interesting thing. It's one of the things that Tolkien does, and you're talking about frames, and, and yes, I was reading Collingwood, um, is he's writing a story that you find yourself inside of. And mm -hmm. Sam and Frodo, fame, you know, this is one of my touchstone places in the story, Sam and Frodo on the stairs of Kirith Ungol recognize that they are in the longer story that in fact, when Tolkien published The Lord of the Rings, we didn't know the full thing. We, we you know, there's hints of it in The Lord of the Rings, and it was published over the, um, posthumously by Christopher over many decades. But it's in the Silmarillion, and it's this giant back backstory of creation and the fall of the, the 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 fall of the elves, the fall of the Numenorians. And when you get to The Lord of the Rings, you're you're sort of in the last act of a very long story and and Sam looking up into the the night sky sees a star which he then recognizes as the star of Arendelle which is the the same as the the Silmaril the Fëanor it's like it, it cascades down and i mean people who enjoy rereading the lord of the rings you you're constantly finding yourself yet again in that story and that Collingwood talked about frames Tolkien is also very conscious of giving you frames by which to find yourself in the story. I mean, the hobbits is the storytellers is the, is one of them, but there's also the way in which they are these liminal characters, right? Elf friend, right? So Frodo and Bilbo are recognized as the elf friends that bring you into then the, the, the deeper mythology, the elvish stories and the elves are kind of bridges to getting you to the creation story and creation is you know, the contemplative story. So, 
there's nested frames and the invitation to participate in it in it yourself as the characters themselves find out that they're doing. So you definitely yeah, have to, I mean, but you have to reread it to keep having that experience. Hmm. Right, and I think that's, I mean, that's got to be the 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 key the selling point, the, the experience, and the fact that it's not we're not just getting information when we're when we're supposed to be reading these kind of stories, the stories that matter, right? I mean, I remember when I was right. when I was I was working at a Barnes and Noble. And someone came up to me at one point and uh, and asked me, said, I'm looking for a book. And I said, okay, it's time to do the Porphyrian tree. You know, let's first narrow down, is it nonfiction or fiction? So I said, well, is it fiction or nonfiction? Mm. And the person said, it, well, which one's the one that's true? And a part of my soul <laughs> just, I mean, maybe my entire soul just, just died. because. And I said, I said to this person, I forget if it was a man or woman, I said, well, fiction's the real one. But if you want a bunch of random facts, then maybe it's nonfiction, you know, that th- that fiction, <laughs> people, fiction had this, but it was just it was a soul crushing moment because I knew that this person didn't mean what I meant. But it was a moment for, for evangelization. But that that when you're reading these kind of stories, real literature uh, like this, it's it's not just that you're feeling it, but you're reframing your own experience. And you're, of course, as you reread them, you're changing as a person through time yourself with experience. So when you read, you know. Tolkien 10 years, 20 years later or something, you are a different person. You're receiving a different thing. You're seeing something different. It's why I'm scared to read some of my favorite like classic books from when I was in high school because I don't know if they'll stand up. Like They were good for young me, but I don't right. know if they'll, if they'll stand up to scrutiny of like old me you know, or like middle-aged me or something. But the greatest writers are the ones that, my gosh, they just stand up and they change you. You know, it's not just like you taking something from them, but actually they're taking you on this. So I think that's that's absolutely right. And, and the greatest author in Tolkien is, is one of these examples um, of that. Yeah, I think that, but, I mean, that, that counters like the first objection people have to reading Tolkien, right? They say, oh, it's laborious and there's so much in there. Uh, but but this is, a, this is seeing the opposite side of that argument saying, well, this is precisely why it's valuable because there's so much that you continue to return to it, right? Uh, and so I, I think that that, you know, that's one of the objections that you hear is that, that, that you have you have the foreign names, you have the, uh, as you were talking about, you have the, the immense backstory of an entire world that has to be adopted, that has to be entered into. And for many people, this is an obstacle. Um, I'm wondering what you might say about uh, other obstacles that people sometimes raise to reading Tolkien, right? Like one one that's familiar um, that, that, of course, you've encountered is this, this complaint that Tolkien um, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien is a, a kind of fundamentally a misogynist that his feminine character is very weak uh, or uninteresting. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know what you would say to this objection. It's nonsense. Um, Tolkien's t- <laughs> there were there are several of his is you know his female characters um, that if you know, if you know the backstory you know in fact Luthien is his greatest heroine of all. Um, and that that star that Sam sees in the sky, Arendel, is the Silmaril that she helps Baron capture from Morgoth um, in his you know, like fortress, right? And Luthien, throughout the story, Baron and Luthien is the the, it, the, the, the the her story is basically the girl and her dog saved the boyfriend, <laughs> right? Because. Um, <laughs> No, Baron sees her dancing in the forest. He falls in love with her. Her father, the elf, says, no, you can't marry her unless you get the Silmaril from Morgoth, which he thinks is an impossible quest. And over the course of the story, Luthien is the one that shows up and rescues him several times from the dungeons where Sauron has captured him, you know, from Morgoth and, and so forth. And so 
um, you know, and Luthien is the character that Tolkien modeled after his wife, right? <laughs> that she, you know, he saw Edith dancing in the forest when they were, you know, newly married and young, and 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 that scene is the one that he places at the, the you know, when Baron falls in love with Luthien. So no, Tolkien's not writing weak female characters by any means. Um, the the one that people you know d default to claiming that he's misogynist about is Eowyn, of course, because she has this longing to be you know a warrior, and there's the speech about how you know um, Eomer doesn't understand that his sister felt locked in a cage. Well, one er uh, Gandalf is saying that, and two Tolkien wrote it right, and so mm. <laughs> when when you know it's it's he's curiously so immersive you forget he's the author and so when you're sympathizing with Eowyn feeling frustrated at being told stay home when she wants to go fight or you know she falls in love with Aragorn but he's actually already wedded you know betrothed to Arwen and that makes Eowyn depressed and so she flings herself into battle and then kills the only dragon in the Lord of the Rings she kills the the rider the the um, steed of the the um, wraith the only reason you know all of those things is because Tolkien's telling you, right? And and so what I find, I find bemusing about this is Tolkien so well understands women's frustration on a variety of levels that people can forget he showed you that. Mm -hmm. How can, like how can that. he be a misogynist and actually appreciate Eowyn's frustrations and um, ambition? And also, I mean, she ends up becoming a healer and a, and a you know, Mary's Faramir. But Aragorn's greatest strength is a healer, right? He's revealed to be king when he's in the houses of healing and has the ethelos and, you know, revives Eowyn and, and, and Mary. And so if if being a healer is considered, a you know, a, a, a downgrade from warrior, well, what did he just do to Aragorn? It, it's a mm -hmm. nonsensical argument, which is the sort of failing to recognize that Tolkien himself is pushing back against the the car the cardboard version of of these characters hmm. it's so much i think it's it's this is a thing in culture general is it's an easy argument those kind of arguments are, right. are everyone everyone just kind of agrees with you when they hear the kind of tropes in this way like oh well, he was before so he must have been a show he must have been a misogynist and people go oh of course and then there's like one kind of surface thing but actual depth people actually know these things whether it be history literature or theology or something and say like actually here's just a list of things we just talked about and I know you're not going to pay attention to me, but you're you're just you're just going along with the bandwagon and this sort of thing, and you get a lot of applause. But there's not the real there's not the real depth there and legitimacy of that criticism. It just people think it sounds it sounds good. That's I suspect that's kind of right. what we're going to be doing for the next twenty years in academia, or at least fifty. Um, one more question before we get into like the specifics. This since we're doing this is because it's like a Dominican style. You start with objections and then you uh, and then you move to the kind of responses in the corpus. Um, so some people say, well, I don't like Lord of the Tolkien. I mean, he's doing something for Christianity here and he has a Catholic vision. He's got moral lessons. But I mean, C.S. Lewis is so much better at doing this because he just tells you <laughs> Narnia is so much easier <laughs> Tolkien, I mean, you get lost and stuff, and who knows, and you could read this book and have no idea it's about Christianity. So, like, in terms of getting moral lessons or lessons about Christianity, I mean, Tolkien, he should have learned something from Lewis and just kept it simple. I mean, what are your... I have, I have, I have my own thoughts and answers to that, but surely you have, you have good <laughs> thoughts on how to counter that sort of thing without being pedantic or, like, polemic, yeah. Uh, I can't... I'm going to be both. Um, uh, those who think Narnia... <laughs> 
Yeah. Those who think Please. Narnia is 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 simpler should read Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, and mm-hmm. they will find that they've missed most of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I hadn't I recognized it until I read Ward, and he's showing the way in which, you know, Lewis may feel sort of more surface, but he has a an astonishing depth in the way in which he's thinking about the the sort of lar- large system that his story is operating in, which is this, you know, the mm-hmm. music of the spheres and the, and the celestial, which also explains his interest in the space trilogy. Um, Tolkien, if you're not, if you don't recognize it as Christian throughout, again, you're not paying attention because the um, central character, the, the title character of the narrative, I mean, the full story is the downfall of the Lord of the Rings. And there, I think there's a, a second part of that story, but it's the downfall of the Lord of the Rings. Who's the Lord of the Rings? Oh, right. Satan. <laughs> um and yeah. uh you know the the sort of i i of course have in the last well it's it's always there but it, you know it, it, talking about what the ring is and how people get drawn into it and what the temptation is tolkien has you know the single most powerful psychological demonstration of how easy it is to give into evil that I can think of in, in, in the literature. So if you want it, like, it's too complicated. Well, no, it's actually quite overt is Sauron wants to dominate all other free wills. And the ring is a, is a device. It's a magical device for bringing all other, you know, the the elves and the dwarves and the men into all other thinking beings, rational beings under his control. That is the most straightforward description of evil that I can give. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I I want to get into some more specific themes about this, especially for readers that they can see it with fresh eyes again, because hopefully people will reread these things after after hearing this. But we're gonna take a quick break from, and uh, listen to our sponsors. I'm not sure who those are, um, but uh, the the big quick, quick break, and we're back here with Professor Rachel Ful- Rachel Fulton Brown, one of the most interesting, perhaps the most interesting medievalist uh, in the world at this moment. So we'll just be back with Professor Brown. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. And we're back. This is Godsplaining, a guestsplaining episode, although, as Professor Brown emailed me about before, it should be Tolkien-splaining, I guess. Um, we're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien uh, with an expert here, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown from University of Chicago, uh, who has a, a course on on a Tolkien as well. We mentioned at the end as well, enough the forge, forging of Tolkien. But we're just talking about the objections to reading the books or why people might not want to get involved in this thing. And I mean, the language and all of the, that. I've always thought that was a bit boring because if you ever stand behind someone in Starbucks and listen to the kind of words they're using, which they surely don't use on a daily, a daily basis, they're fine learning new words. So if, if you can learn a new word to get your special latte, you can certainly pay attention to Tolkien. For, the, for readers who are perhaps familiar with Lord of the Rings and think they know something about it, what would you say are are some big themes or some themes that they might not get on the first go that is something they could keep their eyes out for that you that, that you're surprised that people don't see but now you've seen mm. um you mentioned one about the i mean the idea of of the description of evil about controlling wills and the, with the ring I bet you most people did not did not see that what are some other things that you try to get across or you think really important to say actually you know this is what this is about 
or this is a really important thing that you might miss if you're not paying attention to all of the other things going on there? Well, the large theme of Tolkien's Legendarium is creativity and, and sub-creation and the making of things. Right? That's why the, the ring is an evil object, because it's, a, it's an artifact. It's a machine, a magical machine for controlling those who have the free will for making other things, right? And um, in, the, in the large story that Tolkien writes, he's thinking about the elves as artists, um, and their particular fall is to, you know, get too clingy to the beautiful things that they make. They make them out of love of, of the elements that they work within with water and stone and, and you know, tree and leaf and, and, and so forth. Um, but say, for example, with Feanor in the Silmarils, he, he um, fails to be able to let the, okay, these are little details, but he fails to be able to let the Valar break the Silmarils to restore the life to the trees because he's gotten too possessive right and if you've mm. seen the movie version of Gollum and his possessiveness and his preciousness right the, the the evil is it's not the making of the things themselves because Tolkien understood our you know we we're made in the image and likeness of a maker and we're drawn to subcreate in that image and likeness but our fall comes from that very act of making as well because we can get too attached to our making of things I mean, Sauron's trying to control everybody else's making, but the elves can do it by, they sort of, you know, try to hold on to, to life, you know, it, it, and, and they are immortal within the, the creation of the earth. Um, the dwarves get too possessive of the beautiful objects that they make. And you see that in The Hobbit, right? That they want to get the, their mountain horde back that the, that's attracted the dragon, and the dragon has killed all of them because they're so greedy um, with this gold that they'd amassed. Um, and in The Hobbit, the 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 you know the final plot revolves around Bilbo's finding the, the big diamond that the king of the dwarves most wanted and being able to let go of possessiveness of the beautiful things of the earth and so I mean the sort of deep and embracing Christian story that Tolkien's working within is one creation which is why his creation story is so important and our artistic um, mm -hmm. you know longing to participate in that subcreation. Uh, I like this because this ties in with uh, another question that I wanted to ask you, this theme of creation. Um, one of the most interesting characters, I think, is Tom Bombadil, the Ancient of Days, the, the one who's known by the dwarves as Forn, right? The, um, who, is, who is there, as he himself, Bombadil, describes um, when the first acorn was made, right? Um, who is who is this mysterious character, Tom Bombadil? What what does he do for the story? I mean, part of the reason why I asked this question is because I'm still so angry that Peter Jackson cut him out of the cinematic version. And maybe I'll get over that someday. I probably won't. But I but won't. but <laughs> but what 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 do you make of Bombadil? How do you like to introduce him to people? Well, so we were talking about framing in Collingwood. It's just that he's Collingwood, I think. <laughs> um, oh. So Tolkien, no, Tolkien has a variety of framers for his stories. And in, in, the, in the plot of The Lord of the Rings, the hobbits have gone from the Shire, which is home, right, through the gate into the old forest, where Tom, in effect, introduces them to the larger history of, of Arda. And and it and what I do in class when I show the students this is read very carefully the what happens to the the hobbits when they're in Tom's house is he basically sings to them and that if you know the Ainulindule is the song of creation right the 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 Einar sing the world into into reality 
having been shown the music by Iluvatar, Tom sings the story of the, the sort of deep history that the hobbits, I mean, Frodo has been given the backstory of the ring by Gandalf, but Tom gives the hobbits the backstory of the whole of creation. And in the course of that, and it's, it's a passage that I really like um, a lot to point to, he enchants them. And if you know Tolkien's on fairy stories, his essay on fairy stories, he talks about the sort of um, story, stories are this enchantment to bring you into the secondary reality of the story. And um, Father Bonaventure, to go back to your distinction between fiction and nonfiction, exactly, it's exactly reversed. The fiction that we think of as fiction mm. is the real stuff, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> we are encha enchanted to be inside the story. And Tom is the, I mean, within the plot, he's the one who shows the hobbits what that all means, which is therefore, you know, whether he's affected by the ring or not, he somehow, I mean, he, he's not going to be drawn into Sauron's story. He can't be dominated by the ring, and that's why it has no effect on him. He can't become invisible. He's not been wiped out of the reality. He's he's so real that that's who he is. And it's but it's real as the story. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so you, I mean, Jackson yeah. has to obliterate all of that because he just has them, you know, run away from one away at the the um, Ford across the Brandywine and they show up in Bree, right? And so you have none of the, the transition into the larger scope that the hobbits haven't been aware of previously. Yeah. Do you, Professor Brown, do you find anyone who at the end of this uh, course, your discussions or anything, um, says, you know what? I just, I read it. I don't, it doesn't do anything for me. And is that like a judgment on their soul or is there a particular type of person that doesn't um, find Tolkien at all? Like that strikes me as like if someone reads the New Testament, for instance, and says, you know, this Jesus character. I guess some people like him, but you know what? Doesn't really do anything for me. And you hear this kind of thing. And Peter Singer says this explicitly. Um, and I think that's like you shouldn't say those sort of things um, because it, 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 it tells something about yourself that you shouldn't let other people know about. Um, and I feel like maybe with Tolkien, it's it's a similar, you know, it's like when someone looks at good art or something and says, uh, oh, you know, Van Gogh, I mean, that's a real piece of garbage. And I think you've just said about something about your it, good art, like when you speak about good art, it judges you, you don't judge it. And I feel the same way with with uh, with, with good literature. Um, do you find, is there a type of person do you find that just is impermeable to the, the power of Tolkien and the kind of the vision he has? Or do you find that he's able to knock down most, most people um, to to read a fantasy, a fairy tale, as he would say, a fiction, fiction that actually is true, that sort of thing. Well, his fairy tale that is true is the gospel, mm -hmm. um, which he says, right, that there's no other story that we'd rather find is true. And the, the amazing thing about the gospel is it is where legend and history have met. Um, so I would say, yes, if you're not responding to Tolkien, you're probably not responding to the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. In my, in, in my campus course, the students have to have read the Lord of the Rings before they take it. So they probably would have already decided not to take the class <laughs> yeah. if, if, if they couldn't get through the book in the first place. Um, I, you know, I do, I do have the Tolkien is so powerful that he shows you this secondary reality, his story world. And um, as with scripture, people find lots of variants of their engagement with it. And, you know, the, the most, the single most, the thing that frustrates some students with my class is I lean so heavily on Tolkien's own self-descriptions, particularly in his letters, mm. as he's insisting it's Christian and, you know, that he 
you know, loves the sacrament as the great drama and so forth. And, and if they're not Christian yet, they find that difficult. But I'd say for those who, I do obviously hear things, you know, otherwise that you know, mock Tolkien and see him as nothing, but, you know, encouraging too much cosplaying. <laughs> um, <laughs> then I say, you know, you are um, still those flatland characters that haven't been able to appreciate that the sphere just dropped through your plane. That you're you're not able to see that you know what you see is just this this you know walk across a landscape in costume is uh, only one layer of the reality that he's trying to describe. Yeah, it's a bit like if we do a, a real banal example of the Field of Dreams issue, where you know the I forget Kevin Costner's his wife's brother I think or something can't see the players and has to have mm. this dramatic conversion and all of a sudden sees them and I think. If people don't really get into it, they're they're mis they just don't they misunderstand it, like oh it's a kid's story um, or it's like oh it's something you you know people are just playing yeah dress up and things like that and it's like no I can see how you could start there but you're really just you haven't seen it yet you know you haven't had the vision yet and you haven't and then once you have it it kind of it's hard to unsee you know it's like a certain right. necker cube or some kind of thing like once you see through certain eyes so through someone's eyes you might choose not to see through those eyes anymore but it's impossible not to to see through them in that way. Right, um, but it's the same criticism of Christianity. I mean, if, they, if, they, mm. if they make the criticism of Tolkien, they're probably making it also of Christ. Yeah, that's... Uh, that, and I now, I, I don't know if you've been asked, I suspect you have been asked this, but um, so in one of your pieces, you write, um, to understand Mary as medieval Christians imagined her, one has to understand everything. She is there in the art and the architecture and the music, the, she is there in the literature and the liturgy and the liberal arts. She is the most elevated expression of, of human imagination, the humblest prayers for help, all this sort of thing. Um, so she's everywhere. Mary is everywhere, as you say. Um, now, this is about Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien, but um, is Mary there in the uh, in the literature of J.R.R. Tolkien? And where is, is she if she's there? Well, she's there in the same way Christ is, which is not in a particular character. Um, mm-hmm that she she's there in the desire to be incarnate which is 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 certainly what tolkien is is playing off of and that i mean and the desire to be in his story and and so forth but when i'm describing mary in those terms and that's coming out of trying to explain what i had to do to write mary in the art of prayer to appreciate what it means for the artist to enter into his creation which is the way tolkien would put it you have to understand mary as like everything, right? Because mm-hmm. the art, the, the you know, the maker of all has has become incarnate through her. And in the medieval understanding, she is, you know, the one who contains he whom the heavens could not contain. So she's the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, the Holy Mountain, the Holy City. And Tolkien, I think, is he's trying to describe creation with that potential, and in one of his um, later works, the the conversation between Finrod and Andreth, they bring that up in particular. And Finrod is said that he's an elf, and it says to Andreth, who's a woman, um, you know, we hear that there's this this hope that you have that you know the artist will enter into his work, and she's sort of saying, how could that be? Wouldn't it break? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And th- that you know that understanding that you know. Christ becomes incarnate through Mary and that should have broken reality, which you could say it did. Right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, for example, in Anselm of Canterbury's um, prayer to Mary saying, you show to the world its creator 
whom it had not seen, right? It's it's the revelation. Christ mm-hmm. becomes visible through the incarnation, and sh- is shown to the world through her. And so I think you know Mary is. He, there's that famous letter where um, Father Marie compared her to Gladriel, and I've I've since been realizing that there's elements of Ryder Haggard she <laughs> in Gladriel. So I'm not sure Gladriel is the perfect Marian image, but I think mm-hmm. the, the, the create the create the creation as the frame for the mm. creator's incarnation is the the deep mystery that Tolkien is working with. And and therefore she's mm. kind of everywhere. Yeah, she's definitely like material in the trees. framing. Yeah, oh. and, and mm. the in, in in the medieval liturgies Ecclesiasticus twenty four is one of the great readings and um you know Tolkien is big on trees and not just you know the ints but the the whole sort of love that he had for trees so his tree focus mm. is as much a t- t- potential marian focus as, as any of the female characters mm. which is not the way he, it's not the way sacramentally Tolkien thought and it's not the way he thought about the problem of creation wow um i have a ton of other questions but i want to ask one practical one that i want to turn <laughs> it over because i've been taking all i've been taking all the time from father patrick and mary and uh, so but a practical one um if someone maybe someone wants to reread these again, the stories of Tolkien again, or read for the first time. Now, more importantly, the first time in a sense. Do you have a recommended order? I mean, obviously, don't read the fellow. You know, the the two towers before the fellowship, you sort of thing. But like in terms of because there is there is the Hobbit. There's the three kind of. There's the Hobbit, and then there's the Cimmerillion. Do you have a particular? Is there an order you say if you're going to read this stuff, read this first? read the trilogy first or this? Do you have a particular preference on what works best or what you find to be the most helpful in getting into the into the framework? Don't start with Silmarillion, even though it's like the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's worse, more specifically because it has no frame. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's what's interesting about Tolkien, uh, sorry, Christopher's decision in, in his original editing of the Silmarillion to publish it with no frame. Like, and in, in some of the other, in the older manuscripts of it, Tolkien has things like this is the story that Rumel told Hengelok or, or whatever, right? So you have a, a problem of, in fact, in fact, how would Genesis be known? And mm-hmm. with the way Christopher published the Silmarillion with no frames, like there was Eru, who's that? What, that makes no sense. Um, starting with The Hobbit makes a lot of sense because that's the, the sort of introduction of those elf friend characters, the hobbits, although in The Hobbit he's a dwarf friend, as it were, that bring you that that are the everyman character that allows you as this non fairy I mean we aren't fairy characters right we're human beings that mostly don't have encounters with elves or angels and the and the hobbits are a, a bridge right and so if you mm-hmm. start with the hobbit and then read the lord of the rings then you know the delight that people take in all the details in fact Tolkien's language is not that difficult and and mm-hmm. you can have this feeling that he's using all these fancy like color adjectives, and in fact he says things are silver, or they're blue, or they're green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's his 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 descriptive language is in fact quite plain, um, but you're he's he's so good at at you know sort of singing to you like Tom Bombadil that you feel like he's saying more than he actually is. Mm, well, that's I that's. From my perspective, so I'm a, a philosophy uh, guy, so I read a lot of British British philosophy and Oxford philosophy and Cambridge guys, and they have ability, Collingwood's like this, um, very simple, this isn't German prose that takes, mm-hmm. you know, an entire page to get through a sentence, <laughs> It's but when you, any sentence you read of Collingwood or any of the boys, you know, Joachim or anyone else, it's packed 
F.H. Bradley, these guys. Right. And so it's simple, but my gosh, it's loaded. And so I suspect mm. he got some of that from the, there's just the British style in the early 20th century of, of writing things in a particular way that was simple, but profound and not the ways that we, we tend to think about it today. He also rewrote the, everything a lot. Oh, sorry. He, he, I mean, it's like, mm. he's a philologist. So his word choices are very specific, but he kept mm. rewriting, not so the Lord of the Rings. He did write like more like normal writers, write. But with the Silmarillion and his other stories, he kept revising because he was trying to discover the style that he could tell these stories in as well. Right. Father Patrick, do you have any? Yeah, just Again, I, by way of conclusion, I guess I, one, one of the big one of the big themes that I think is so beautiful about Tolkien. Well, it's not a theme so much as it is the story arc and it's for him um, something intentional, ideological, uh, Christian even. But it is this idea of the eucatastrophe, right? Um, when he describes in on fairy stories the the power of a fairy tale ending, you know it can be tempting to look at that and say, "Well, you should read fairy tales because they always end happily," um, and and to that to simply say like, "Oh, that's the reason why the Lord of the Rings is a great book because it has a happy ending." Um, is that true? Happy ending for whom? Um, I mean, Frodo has to <laughs> no. Frodo well has asked. to leave because he's well too asked. damaged. Mm. He's too damaged. Sam mm. gets to go home and have a family. The eucatastrophe is this is is um, the joy that follows sorrow. It's 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 the um, joy like joy like swords poignant as grief, right? And um, the 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 eucatastrophe moment in the Lord of the Rings is the field of Carmalin when Frodo and Sam have been rescued and they are you know being honored by the the, the army and there's a a herald who comes and he's going to sing, you know, the song of Frodo and the nine finger and the nine fingers in the ring of doom or whatever. And it's that, again, we've had that theme, right? You find yourself in the story and there's this, this sort of, with the, you know, the, the gospel story, it's again, our finding ourselves in that story to realize with the sorrow is our greatest joy. So eucatastrophe mm. is not simply happy ending or happily ever after. And in fact, the Lord of the Rings does not end with a happily ever after. It ends with, I mean, there's a sorrow of the elves leaving Middle Earth, and that's projected at the beginning when so it's like all of the all of the all of the sort of grand figures that you're going to meet in the story left, right in the end. Mm. Um, but there's right. also it's 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 in fact provisional. Um, Sauron is is banished as it were, but he's not destroyed. And Tolkien did try writing the sequel, the sort of Return of the Shadow or something like that. And it was just too dark. Mm. He couldn't do it. Because, in fact, we don't, I mean, Christ is our victory. And the Lord of the Rings is all temporally imagined as prior to, to the incarnation. Mm. Um, mm. But it's, 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 as long as we're living in time, it's... Uh, you know, we don't have the final victory, as it were. So it only has it only has it has a moment of blended joy and sorrow. It doesn't have a happy ending in the kind of everybody's. Um, uh, I mean, there's a happily ever after, but it's the weddings, right, and children, and then children mm -hmm. bring mm -hmm. new difficulties and grief and no more adventures. Right. It's the it's the, the dynamic of the already and not yet. The kind of the Christian life as it is, as we as we live it. Right. You know, it has these joys and a, a knowing that it will be all right at the end, but still ups and downs here and sadness that we pray the joyful mysteries and the sorrowful mysteries uh, and the glorious right. mysteries. Well, um, Professor Brown, it was an absolute delight. I feel like this episode could go on forever uh, because I have so much more to talk about. But um, thank you for the time that you've given us. 
Uh, I want to uh, let our listeners know that um, if there's one thing, well, two things you should do from this episode. One is is to read Tolkien again, of course, with fresh eyes, because <laughs> you're a different person than the last time you read him, um, and therefore you'll you'll learn a lot more about yourself as opposed to random facts. Um, but before you do any of that, you should really go to uh, just just Google uh, Rachel Fulton Brown, and you will be taken to her website. And then you will be stuck in an old, your own world. It'll be, a, it'll be like a Tolkien-esque <laughs> world of many things. Now, there won't be dragons, but there'll be fencing. There'll be prayer. There'll be bears. There'll be merry. It's impressive. Um, so there's just a lot there. And uh, I challenge you to go there first and, and, uh, and, and look around and enjoy and luxuriate in, the, in, in everything there. But I want to thank Professor Brown for, for taking time out of her busy schedule uh, to, to, talk, to talk to us, tell us about Tolkien. There's so many, so many great insights. Um, and then I want to shift over to, so thank you, Professor Brown, for, for everything. Well, thank you for having me. And then, uh, Father Patrick Murray, do you have anything that you want to talk? Uh, you're the Godsplaining kind of guy. I'm just here to, to do stuff. Yeah, that's so. right. We just want to thank our listeners for liking, following, and sharing the podcast. Um, if there's someone who needs to be Tolkien-splained, please send this episode to them. Text it to them several times until they <laughs> until they listen. I mean, I know every day someone is telling you to, you have to listen to this this or that podcast, but those of you that choose to listen to God's planning and even more choose to share it. Many thanks. So like us, uh, follow us on social media and thanks especially to those of you who support our efforts on Patreon. All right. We'll pray for you and you pray for us and have a great week. And thanks for tuning in for God's planning. Thanks for listening to God's planning, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.